0: PART 9 OF VOLUME 1 OF PLUTARCH'S PARALLEL LIVES This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman VOLUME 1 OF PLUTARCH'S PARALLEL LIVES OF THE NOBLE GREEKS AND ROMANS TRANSLATED BY BERNARDOT Perin. LYCURGUS PART 2 As for the public messes, the Cretans call them Andria, but the Lacedaemonians Phyditia, either because they are conducive to friendship and friendliness, Phyditia being equivalent to Philitia, or because they accustom men to simplicity and thrift, for which their word is Phido but it is quite possible, as some say, that the first letter of the word phyditia has been added to it, making phyditia out of editia, which refers merely to meals and eating. They met in companies of fifteen, a few more or less, and each one of the messmates contributed monthly a bushel of barley meal, eight gallons of wine, five pounds of cheese, two and a half pounds of figs, and, in addition to this, a very small sum of money for such relishes as flesh and fish. Besides this, whenever any one made a sacrifice of first-fruits or brought home game from the hunt, he sent a portion to his mess. For whenever any one was belated by a sacrifice or the chase, he was allowed to sup at home, but the rest had to be at the mess. For a long time this custom of eating at common mess-tables was rigidly observed. For instance, when King Aegis, on returning from an expedition in which he had been victorious over the Athenians, wished to sup at home with his wife, and sent for his rations, the Polymarchs refused to send them to him, and when on the following day his anger led him to omit the customary sacrifice, they laid a fine upon him. Boys also used to come to these public messes, as if they were attending schools of sobriety. There they would listen to political discussions and see instructive models of liberal breeding. There they themselves also became accustomed to sport and jest without scurrility, and to endure jesting without displeasure. Indeed it seems to have been especially characteristic of a Spartan to endure jesting, but if any one could not bear up under it, he had only to ask it, and the jester ceased. As each one came in, the eldest of the company pointed to the door and said to him, "'Through that door no word goes forth outside,' and they say that a candidate for membership in one of these messes underwent the following ordeal. Each of the messmates took in his hand a bit of soft bread, and when a servant came along with a bowl upon his head, then they cast it into this without a word, like a ballot, leaving it just as it was if he approved of the candidate, but if he disapproved squeezing it tight in his hand first. For the flattened piece of bread had the force of a perforated or negative ballot, and if one such is found in the bowl, the candidate is not admitted to the mess, because they wish all its members to be congenial the candidate thus rejected is said to have been caddished for Cadicus is the name of the bowl into which they cast the pieces of bread of their dishes the black broth is held in the highest esteem so that the elderly men do not even ask for a bit of meat but leave it for the young men while they themselves have the broth poured out for their meals and it is said that one of the kings of Pontus actually bought a Spartan cook for the sake of having this broth, and then, when he tasted it, disliked it, whereupon the cook said, O king, those who relish this broth must first have bathed in the river Eurotas. After drinking moderately they go off home without a torch, for they are not allowed to walk with a light, either on this or any other occasion, that they may accustom themselves to marching boldly and without fear in the darkness of night. Such, then, is the fashion of their common messes. None of his laws were put into writing by Lycurgus, indeed one of the so-called retras forbids it. For he thought that if the most important and binding principles which conduce to the prosperity and virtue of a city were implanted in the habits and training of its citizens, they would remain unchanged and secure, having a stronger bond than compulsion in the fixed purposes imparted to the young by education, which performs the office of a lawgiver for every one of them and as for minor matters, such as business contracts and cases where the needs vary from time to time, it was better, as he thought, not to hamper them by written constraints or fixed usages, but to suffer them, as occasion demanded, to receive such modifications as educated men should determine. Indeed, he assigned the function of law-making wholly and entirely to education. One of his rechers, accordingly, as I have said, prohibited the use of written laws. Another was directed against extravagance, ordaining that every house should have its roof fashioned by the axe, and its doors by the saw only, and by no other tool. For, as in later times Epaminondas is reported to have said at his own table, that such a meal did not comport with treachery, so lycurgus was the first to see clearly that such a house does not comport with luxury and extravagance nor is any man so vulgar and senseless as to introduce into a simple and common house silver-footed couches purple coverlets gold drinking-cups and all the extravagance which goes along with these but one must of necessity adapt and proportion his couch to his house his coverlets to his couch, and to this the rest of his supplies and equipment. It was because he was used to this simplicity that Leotychides the elder, as we are told, when he was dining in Corinth and saw the roof of the house adorned with costly panellings, asked his host if trees grew square in that country. A third retra of Lycurgus is mentioned, which forbids making frequent expeditions against the same enemies, in order not to accustom such enemies to frequent defence of themselves, which would make them warlike. And this was the special grievance which they had against King Agesilaus in later times, namely that by his continual and frequent incursions and expeditions into Boeotia, he rendered the Thebans a match for the Lacedaemonians and therefore when Antalcidas saw the king wounded he said, This is a fine tuition fee which thou art getting from the Thebans for teaching them how to fight when they did not wish to do it and did not know how. Such ordinances as these were called Retras by Lycurgus, implying that they came from the god and were oracles. In the matter of education, which he regarded as the greatest and noblest task of the lawgiver, he began at the very source by carefully regulating marriages and births. For it is not true that, as Aristotle says, he tried to bring the women under proper restraint, but desisted because he could not overcome the great license and power which the women enjoyed on account of the many expeditions in which their husbands were engaged. During these the men were indeed obliged to leave their wives in sole control at home, and for this reason paid them greater deference than was their due, and gave them the title of mistress. But even to the women Lycurgus paid all possible attention. He made the maidens exercise their bodies in running, wrestling, casting the discus, and hurling the javelin, in order that the fruit of their wombs might have vigorous root in vigorous bodies, and come to better maturity, and that they themselves might come with vigour to the fullness of their times, and struggle successfully and easily with the pangs of childbirth. He freed them from softness and delicacy and all effeminacy by accustoming the maidens no less than the youths to wear tunics only in processions, and at certain festivals to dance and sing when the young men were present as spectators. There they sometimes even mocked and railed good-naturedly at any youth who had misbehaved himself, and again they would sing the praises of those who had shown themselves worthy, and so inspire the young men with great ambition and ardour. For he who was thus extolled for his valour and held in honour among the maidens, went away exalted by their praises, while the sting of their playful raillery was no less sharp than that of serious admonitions, especially as the kings and senators, together with the rest of the citizens, were all present at the spectacle. Nor was there anything disgraceful in this scant clothing of the maidens, for modesty attended them, and wantonness was banished. Nay, rather it produced in them habits of simplicity, and an ardent desire for health and beauty of body. It gave also to womankind a taste of lofty sentiment, for they felt that they too had a place in the arena of bravery and ambition. Wherefore they were led to think and speak as Gorgo, the wife of Leonidas, is said to have done. When some foreign woman, as it would seem, said to her, you spartan women are the only ones who rule their men she answered yes we are the only ones that give birth to men moreover there were incentives to marriage in these things i mean such things as the appearance of the maidens without much clothing in processions and athletic contests where young men were looking on for these were drawn on by necessity not geometrical but the sort of necessity which lovers know, as Plato says. Nor was this all. Lycurgus also put a kind of public stigma upon confirmed bachelors. They were excluded from the sight of the young men and maidens at their exercises, and in winter the magistrates ordered them to march round the marketplace in their tunics only and as they marched they sang a certain song about themselves, and its burden was that they were justly punished for disobeying the laws. Besides this, they were deprived of the honour and gracious attentions which the young men habitually paid to their elders. Therefore there was no one to find fault with what was said to Durcilidas, reputable general though he was, as he entered a company namely one of the younger men would not offer him his seat but said indeed thou hast begotten no son who will one day give his seat to me for their marriages the women were carried off by force not when they were small and unfit for wedlock but when they were in full bloom and wholly ripe after the woman was thus carried off the bridesmaid so called took her in charge cut her hair off close to the head put a man's cloak and sandals on her and laid her down on a pallet on the floor alone in the dark then the bridegroom not flown with wine nor enfeebled by excesses but composed and sober after supping at his public mess-table as usual slipped stealthily into the room where the bride lay loosed her virgin's zone and bore her in his arms to the marriage-bed. Then, after spending a short time with his bride, he went away composedly to his usual quarters, there to sleep with the other young men. And so he continued to do from that time on, spending his days with his comrades, and sleeping with them at night, but visiting his bride by stealth and with every precaution, full of dread and fear, lest any of her household should be aware of his visits, his bride also contriving and conspiring with him that they might have stolen interviews as occasion offered. And this they did not for a short time only, but long enough for some of them to become fathers before they had looked upon their own wives by daylight. Such interviews not only brought into exercise self-restraint and moderation, but united husbands and wives when their bodies were full of creative energy and their affections new and fresh, not when they were sated and dulled by unrestricted intercourse, and there was always left behind in their hearts some residual spark of mutual longing and delight. After giving marriage such trays of reserve and decorum, he none the less freed men from the empty and womanish passion of jealous possession, by making it honourable for them, while keeping the marriage relation free from all wanton irregularities, to share with other worthy men in the begetting of children laughing to scorn those who regard such common privileges as intolerable, and resort to murder and war rather than grant them. For example, an elderly man with a young wife, if he looked with favour and esteem on some fair and noble young man, might introduce him to her, and adopt her offspring by such a noble father as his own and again a worthy man who admired some woman for the fine children that she bore her husband and the modesty of her behaviour as a wife might enjoy her favours if her husband would consent thus planting as it were in a soil of beautiful fruitage and begetting for himself noble sons who would have the blood of noble men in their veins for in the first place Lycurgus did not regard sons as the peculiar property of their fathers, but rather as the common property of the state, and therefore would not have his citizens spring from random parentage, but from the best there was. In the second place he saw much folly and vanity in what other peoples enacted for the regulation of these matters. In the breeding of dogs and horses, they insist on having the best sires which money or favour can secure, but they keep their wives under lock and key, demanding that they have children by none but themselves, even though they be foolish or infirm or diseased, as though children of bad stock did not show their badness to those first who possessed and reared them, and children of good stock contrariwise their goodness the freedom which thus prevailed at that time in marriage relations, was aimed at physical and political well-being, and was far removed from the licentiousness which was afterwards attributed to their women, so much so that adultery was wholly unknown among them. And a saying is reported of one Geridas, a Spartan of very ancient type, who, on being asked by a stranger what the punishment for adulterers was among them, answered, Stranger, there is no adulterer among us. Suppose, then, replied the stranger, there should be one. A bull, said Gerardas, would be his forfeit, a bull so large that it could stretch over Mount Taegetus and drink from the river Eurotas. Then the stranger was astonished and said, But how could there be a bull so large? To which Gerardas replied with a smile, But how could there be an adulterer in Sparta? Such then are the accounts we find of their marriages. Offspring was not reared at the will of the father, but was taken and carried by him to a place called Lesci where the elders of the tribes officially examined the infant, and if it was well built and sturdy, they ordered the father to rear it, and assigned it one of the nine thousand lots of land. But if it was ill-born and deformed, they sent it to the so-called apothetai, a chasm-like place at the foot of Mount Taegetus, in the conviction that the life of that which nature had not well equipped at the very beginning for health and strength, was of no advantage either to itself or the state. On the same principle, the women used to bathe their newborn babes not with water, but with wine, thus making a sort of test of their constitutions. For it is said that epileptic and sickly infants are thrown into convulsions by the strong wine, and loose their senses, while the healthy ones are rather tempered by it, like steel, and given a firm habit of body. Their nurses, too, exercised great care and skill. They reared infants without swaddling-bands, and thus left their limbs and figures free to develop. Besides, they taught them to be contented and happy, not dainty about their food, nor fearful of the dark, nor afraid to be left alone, nor given to contemptible peevishness and whimpering. This is the reason why foreigners sometimes bought Spartan nurses for their children. A for instance, the nurse of the Athenian Alcibiades, is said to have been a Spartan. And yet Alcibiades, as Plato says, had for a tutor set over him by Pericles one Zopyrus, who was just a common slave. But Lycurgus would not put the sons of Spartans in charge of purchased or hired tutors, nor was it lawful for every father to rear or train his son as he pleased but as soon as they were seven years old lycurgus ordered them all to be taken by the state and enrolled in companies where they were put under the same discipline and nurture and so became accustomed to share one another's sports and studies the boy who excelled in judgment and was most courageous in fighting was made captain of his company. On him the rest all kept their eyes, obeying his orders, and submitting to his punishments, so that their boyish training was a practice of obedience. Besides, the elderly men used to watch their sports, and by ever and anon egging them on to mimic battles and disputes, learned accurately how each one of them was naturally disposed when it was a question of boldness and aggressiveness in their struggles. Of reading and writing they learned only enough to serve their turn. All the rest of their training was calculated to make them obey commands well, endure hardships, and conquer in battle. Therefore, as they grew in age, their bodily exercise was increased, Their heads were close-clipped, and they were accustomed to going barefoot, and to playing for the most part without clothes. When they were twelve years old, they no longer had tunics to wear, received one cloak a year, had hard dry flesh, and knew little of baths and ointments. Only on certain days of the year, and few at that, did they indulge in such amenities. They slept together in troops and companies on pallet beds which they collected for themselves, breaking off with their hands, no knives allowed, the tops of the rushes which grew along the river Eurotas. In the winter time they added to the stuff of these pallets the so called lycophone, or thistledown, which was thought to have warmth in it. When the boys reached this age, they were favoured with the society of lovers from among the reputable young men the elderly men also kept close watch of them coming more frequently to their places of exercise and observing their contests of strength and wit not cursorily but with the idea that they were all in a sense the fathers and tutors and governors of all the boys in this way at every fitting time and in every place the boy who went wrong had someone to admonish and chastise him. Nor was this all. One of the noblest and best men of the city was appointed pedanome, or inspector of the boys, and under his directions the boys in their several companies put themselves under the command of the most prudent and warlike of the so-called Irenes. This was the name given to those who had been for two years out of the class of boys, and Melirene's, or would-be Irene's, was the name for the oldest of the boys. This Irene then, a youth of twenty years, commands his subordinates in their mimic battles, and indoors makes them serve him at his meals. He commissions the larger ones to fetch wood, and the smaller ones pot-herbs and they steal what they fetch, some of them entering the gardens, and others creeping right slyly and cautiously into the public messes of the men. But if a boy is caught stealing, he is soundly flogged as a careless and unskilful thief. They steal, too, whatever food they can, and learn to be adept in setting upon people when asleep or off their guard, but the boy who is caught gets a flogging and must go hungry, for the meals allowed them are scanty in order that they may take into their own hands the fight against hunger, and so be forced into boldness and cunning. This is the main object of their spare diet. A secondary one is to make them grow tall for it contributes to height of stature when the vitality is not impeded and hindered by a mass of nourishment which forces it into thickness and width, but ascends of its own lightness and when the body grows freely and easily. The same thing seems also to conduce to beauty of form, for lean and meagre habits yield more readily to the force of articulation, whereas the gross and overfed are so heavy as to resist it. Just so, we may be sure, women who take physic while they are pregnant bear children which are lean, it may be, but well-shaped and fine, because the lightness of the parent matter makes it more susceptible to moulding. However, the reason for this I must leave for others to investigate." the boys make such a serious matter of their stealing that one of them as the story goes who was carrying concealed under his cloak a young fox which he had stolen suffered the animal to tear out his bowels with its teeth and claws and died rather than have his theft detected and even this story gains credence from what their youths now endure many of whom I have seen expiring under the lash at the altar of Artemis Orthea. The Irene, as he reclined after supper, would order one of the boys to sing a song, and to another would put a question requiring a careful and deliberate answer, as, for instance, who is the best man in the city, or what thinkest thou of this man's conduct? In this way the boys were accustomed to pass right judgments, and interest themselves at the very outset in the conduct of the citizens. For if one of them was asked who was a good citizen, or who an infamous one, and had no answer to make, he was judged to have a torpid spirit, and one that would not aspire to excellence. And the answer must not only have reasons and proof given for it, but also be couched in very brief and concise language." and the one who gave a faulty answer was punished with a bite in the thumb from the irene oftentimes too the irene punished the boys in the presence of the elders and magistrates thus showing whether his punishments were reasonable and proper or not while he was punishing them he suffered no restraint but after the boys were gone he was brought to an account if his punishments were harsher than was necessary, or, on the other hand, too mild and gentle. The boys' lovers also shared with them in their honour or disgrace, and it is said that one of them was once fined by the magistrates because his favourite boy had let an ungenerous cry escape him while he was fighting. Moreover, though this sort of love was so approved among them that even the maidens found lovers in good and noble women, still there was no jealous rivalry in it, but those who fixed their affections on the same boys made this rather a foundation for friendship with one another, and persevered in common efforts to make their loved one as noble as possible. The boys were also taught to use a discourse which combined pungency with grace, and condensed much observation into a few words. His iron money, indeed, Lycurgus made of large weight and small value, as I have observed. But the current coin of discourse he adapted to the expression of deep and abundant meaning with simple and brief diction, by contriving that the general habit of silence should make the boys sententious and correct in their answers. For as sexual incontinence generally produces unfruitfulness and sterility, so intemperance in talking makes discourse empty and vapid. King Aegis, accordingly, when a certain Athenian decried the Spartan swords for being so short, and said the jugglers on the stage easily swallowed them, replied, And yet we certainly reach our enemies with these daggers. And I observe that although the speech also of the Spartans seems short, yet it certainly reaches the point, and arrests the thought of the listener." and, indeed, Lycurgus himself seems to have been short and sententious in his speech, if we may judge from his recorded sayings, that, for instance, on forms of government, to one who demanded the establishment of democracy in the city, "'Go thou,' said he, "'and first establish democracy in thy household.' that, again, to one who inquired why he ordained such small and inexpensive sacrifices, that we may never omit, said he, to honour the gods. Again, in the matter of athletic contests, he allowed the citizens to engage only in those where there was no stretching forth of hands. There are also handed down similar answers which he made by letter to his fellow-citizens when they asked how they could ward off an invasion of enemies he answered by remaining poor and by not desiring to be greater the one than the other and when they asked about fortifying their city he answered a city will be well fortified which is surrounded by brave men and not by bricks now regarding these and similar letters belief and scepticism are alike difficult. Of their aversion to long speeches, the following epithems are proof. King Leonidas, when a certain one discoursed with him out of all season on matters of great concern, said, "'My friend, the matter urges, but not the time.' Carileus, the nephew of Lycurgus, when asked why his uncle had made so few laws, answered, Men of few words need few laws. Archidamidas, when certain ones found fault with Hecateus the sophist for saying nothing after being admitted to their public mess, answered, He who knows how knows also when to speak. Instances of the pungent sayings not devoid of grace of which I spoke are the following. Demaratus, when a troublesome fellow was pestering him with ill-timed questions, and especially with the oft-repeated query, who was the best of the Spartans, answered at last, He who is least like thee and ages when certain ones were praising the eleans for their just and honourable conduct of the olympic games said and what great matter is it for the eleans to practise righteousness one day in five years and theopompus when a stranger kept saying as he showed him kindness that in his own city he was called a lover of sparta remarked my good sir it were better for thee to be called a lover of thine own city. And Pleistoanax, the son of Pausanias, when an Athenian orator declared that the Lacedaemonians had no learning, said, True, we are indeed the only Hellenes who have learned no evil from you. And Archidamus, when some one asked him how many Spartans there were, replied, enough, good sir, to keep evil men away. And even from their jests it is possible to judge of their character, for it was their wont never to talk at random, and to let slip no speech which did not have some thought or other worth serious attention. For instance, when one of them was invited to hear a man imitate the nightingale, he said, "'I have heard the bird herself.' and another on reading the epitaph, Tyranny's fires they were trying to quench when panoplied Ares slew them, Selinus looked down from her gates on their death, said, The men deserved to die. They should have let the fires burn out entirely. And a youth, when someone promised to give him gamecocks that would die fighting, said, Don't do that but give me some of the kind that kill fighting. Another, seeing men seated on stools in a privy, said, May I never sit where I cannot give place to an elder. The character of their apothems then, was such as to justify the remark that love of wisdom rather than love of bodily exercise was the special characteristic of a Spartan nor was their training in music and poetry any less serious a concern than the emulous purity of their speech nay their very songs had a stimulus that roused the spirit and awoke enthusiastic and effectual effort the style of them was simple and unaffected and their themes were serious and edifying they were for the most part praises of men who had died for sparta calling them blessed and happy, censure of men who had played the coward, picturing their grievous and ill-starred life, and such promises and boasts of valour as befitted the different ages. Of the last it may not be amiss to cite one by way of illustration. They had three choirs at their festivals, corresponding to the three ages, And the choir of old men would sing first, We once did deeds of prowess, and were strong young men. Then the choir of young men would respond, We are so now, and if you wish, behold and see. And then the third choir, that of the boys, would sing, We shall be sometime mightier men by far than both. In short, if one studies the poetry of Sparta, of which some specimens were still extant in my time, and makes himself familiar with the marching songs which they used to the accompaniment of the flute when charging upon their foes, he will conclude that Tapanda and Pindar were right in associating valour with music. The former writes thus of the Lacedaemonians, Flourish there both the spear of the brave and the Muse's clear message. Justice, too, walks the broad streets. And Pindar says, There are councils of elders, and young men's conquering spears, and dances, the Muse, and joyousness. The Spartans are thus shown to be at the same time most musical and most warlike. In equal poise to match the sword hangs the sweet art of the harpist, as their poet says. For just before their battles the king sacrificed to the muses, reminding his warriors, as it would seem, of their training, and of the firm decisions they had made, in order that they might be prompt to face the dread issue And might perform such martial deeds as would be worthy of some record. End of Lycurgus, part two. Recording by Graham Redman.